Hello, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Healthcare 360 podcast. I'm Rob Fields. I'm the Chief Clinical Officer here at Beth Israel Leahy Health. I'm really happy to have my friend and colleague, Tony Weiss, joining me here today. Thanks for joining us, Tony. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Tony, I know you are the Chief Medical Officer at Beth Israel Deaconess. I think everyone knows you in terms of that title, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey and why you do what you do. Oh, sure. Well, it's been an interesting journey. I started out as a psychiatrist. I trained in psychiatry at another hospital and at McLean Hospital and was very interested in the brain and in neuroscience and actually started out doing neuroscience imaging, neuroimaging research and started to almost went full time into research. And at one point in my career there, although that was going fairly well, I started to wonder where this was going and how we were actually using the research we already had to improve actual care. Mm -hmm. And I saw a big distinction between the care that patients with schizophrenia, which was the area I was studying, actually got in the real world, and this fancy neuroimaging research I was doing using magnetoencephalography. And I knew at that point this was not going to have the impact that I wanted to have in my career. And I wanted to make care better. And that got me into the world of quality and safety at a time when quality and safety was really hot and exciting and new. Mm -hmm. That was when IHI, which I think was like literally right here, yeah. Yeah, Uh, Started with uh, Dr. Don Berwick and... uh, I think Kevin is in Don's old office, I believe. Probably. (laughs) And uh, Atul Gawande was getting started. And so it was really exciting. And so I got that bug, got involved with that. I started to do some work at MGH, mostly in mental health improvement. Mm -hmm. And then that expanded. And I started to do improvement work across the hospital and other areas at the hospital and went back, got an MBA and tried to figure out how organizations work. And then eventually became the chief medical officer at Upstate University Hospital in Syracuse, which allowed me to focus in on helping lead that hospital to better performance on a number of measures. Mm -hmm. And then about five or six years ago, I got a call to come back to Boston and be the first chief medical officer at BI Deaconess. And I jumped at the opportunity. Yeah. I love Boston. I love working at BI and yeah. And the focus of my career is really to try to make care better. There was a book by Atul Gawande, which was influential for me, called Better. And it was about how you make care better, how you improve care, how you make it safer, how you make access improved. And those are the types of projects I've focused on in, mm-hmm. in my career. You, like me, were joined as an inaugural person in your role. Yeah. What was that like? Well, I had the same opportunity in Syracuse. I was the first chief medical officer there as well. So I had a little bit of understanding of what it's like to come into an organization as the inaugural. You know, for me, it was exciting because there was opportunity to organize things, to shape things in a way that fits what I think would be beneficial to the hospital. And so I think that's been good. It's also an easy culture to come into at BIDMC. It's a friendly culture. It's a close-knit culture. And a very welcoming culture. So that made it very easy. Yeah, that's awesome. Tony, I know one of the things that you're particularly interested in, you mentioned it in some of your comments about where your passion is in terms of making care better. And I know in our conversations, you've also commented on the progression or perhaps lack thereof when you think about the quality and safety movement and gosh, how much more (laughs) we still need to go. But maybe let's start there. I know you have some specific thoughts on how this whole thing got started and how that informs where we are at today. Yeah, it's hard when you've dedicated your career to making care better (laughs) and then you see where we stand today. It's hard not to be frustrated or feel like a personal failure at some level. And I think a lot of folks in quality and safety are feeling that now. It's been almost 25 years since the IOM report, so I'll talk a little bit about the history. But care today is 
probably not any better than it was 25 right. years ago. And in fact, in some ways, you know, there was a paper published in the New England Journal by one of my colleagues at another hospital, David Bates, who showed that the number of adverse events in the hospital is no lower today than it was mm-hmm. 25 years ago. Then coupled with access is probably maybe yeah. worse. Yeah, um, worse. You know, yeah. patient complaints, probably worse. Assaults on staff, if you think about that in the context mm-hmm. of safety, worse. You know, so there's a number of things that get you frustrated. Yeah. And I think ultimately it's going to drive, in my mind, at least paradigm change in how we're thinking about quality and safety. When you think about the history of this area better or improvement in healthcare, the short history is that there's three phases. There's the 1800s and before history where care was provided by charitable organizations mm-hmm. who had goodness in their hearts and the benefit of the doubt from the public that they're trying to do the right thing. Right. So, of course, they're doing the best they can. Mm-hmm. And frankly, we didn't have a lot to offer. I was going to say know, there wasn't like much blood, there. Bloodletting, you right. know, that, that sort of thing. A lot of bloodletting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, We're going back. Going back, yeah. Yeah. And then turn of the 19th, moving to the 20th century, you started to see the Industrial Revolution and industrial management, like Taylorism, starting to take shape and take hold in medicine, especially with Ernest Codman, who was a Boston-based surgeon who had a huge impact on the field, the idea that we should actually measure what we're doing Mm -hmm. and see if we're doing any good through the measurement. He was not well-received. He got kicked out of MGH. But ultimately, that approach started to gain momentum. Mm-hmm. And he was influential in starting ultimately the Joint Commission on Healthcare, which oh, wow. formed in the mid 20th century. Mm-hmm. That was focused largely on structural measures like, do you have enough nurses? Do you have enough doctors? And very simple process measures like, mm-hmm. are you signing your notes? That sort of thing. And that was felt to be good enough. And again, the general public started to gain more trust in and maintain trust in healthcare until the end of the 20th century. And again, in about 1998, 99, there were some major reports from the Institute of Medicine to Aris Human being the first one that said care is not that safe. Right. And we need to do something about it. And that ushered in, I'd say, the most modern phase of healthcare quality improvement, which really tried to adopt techniques and approaches from other industries like the airline industry, aviation, commercial and military and aerospace and nuclear into healthcare. And while there have been some successes from that approach, I'd say adoption of just culture being an important one. Right. It hasn't had the impact that we would have hoped for. Right. And as you mentioned, it was a very recent article that you referenced in the New England Journal from Bates that we haven't really made any movement. And to your point, like maybe a little worse in some cases. Why doesn't it translate? I mean, I think that the average person on the street, we talked about it in a previous podcast, there, there's certainly a compact. We talked about it with Sharon Wright, actually, about infection prevention. You know, mm-hmm. we have maybe to some degree an explicit, but certainly an implicit compact with our patients that says we're here to provide you safe right. and effective care. The evidence is pretty lacking that we're actually delivering on that. And yet, we feel very safe going, jumping on a plane. And for good reason, the statistics are pretty good. Why is it so hard? Yeah, I think there are a few reasons. I think first I should say I'm not 100% negative on the improvement piece. You know, so for example, when we compare care today to even 25 years ago, we're much more efficient with our care. Uh So, you know, the volume of patients put through a clinic or put through the hospital is nowhere near, it's much greater. So when you think about the number of adverse events that occur, it's per Maybe if you looked at it per patient, it would be you know more roughly equivalent or maybe improved. You know, when I first was training in psychiatry, the average length of stay was over 
<laughs> like three weeks. Yeah, right? I'm sure. Right. Um, and now it's a third of that, if that, and that's been true across medicine. Mm-hmm. We've also done massive innovation. And anytime you're going to push that innovation, you're going to push safety to the edge. And so think about laparoscopic surgery as right. an example. Right. Earlier this year, I'll, I'll reveal I had laparoscopic gallbladder surgery. Went, wow. went very well. When my mom had gallbladder surgery uh, back open in procedure. the open procedure, she was yeah. in the hospital for two weeks, right? Wow. And that was not unusual. And so we don't even think about that. Mm-hmm. The incredible innovation. And that's just one kind of basic example. There's many, many others mm-hmm. that are more cutting edge and exciting. We've also pushed the envelope in terms of where care is delivered. Right. And I think that's going to continue. Again, when go back 25 years, everything was in the hospital. Patients were in the ICU. If you had DKA, you were absolutely in the ICU. Now that can be managed in some cases as an OBS patient. Right. right? And we're seeing more care delivered in the home, ambulatory surgical centers. So for all of those reasons, all of those innovations and efficiencies, maybe it's not too surprising that safety overall is not better. All that said, I think there are a number of reasons why this hasn't really translated that well. The premise of these approaches that work so well in the aerospace industry and so forth were that you would have safety events reported in. There are a number of premises, but this is one of the fundamental ones. Safety events reported in by frontline staff. Mm -hmm. Those events would get analyzed and reviewed and looked for root cause of the event, and then action would be taken to fix it and mm-hmm. you would not have that event occur again. And, you know, that works in some industries. I brought the presidential report on the Challenger yeah. accident, right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, this is 200 and, what is this, 260-some pages. Right. And just as an example, you know, now obviously this was the Challenger. This is the space shuttle Challenger. They had Neil Armstrong reviewing the wow. case. Yeah. They had, sure. uh, you know, Richard Feynman reviewing the case. Sally Ride. Wow. These are the folks reviewing Chuck Yeager. Yeah. Those are the people reviewing this incident, right? right. You know, over the course of months. Right. This we, one incident. One incident, right? Yeah. Right. We get about 10,000 safety events submitted annually at BIDMC. Now, obviously, not all of them are of this level of gravity, and fortunately, but there's just no way. There's no way mm-hmm. to review that level of events with that level of detail. Mm-hmm. And this is in true when an airliner goes down. Again, they're now rarer events, so they can be reviewed in depth. So I think that's number one. You know, the volume of the events just doesn't lend itself to that level of... In which, by the way, like that volume is true everywhere. Oh, yeah. In many ways, that's actually a sign of a good safety culture, that people feel open and willing to submit events. It's a non-punitive culture. So, you know, people put in events hoping we would learn from them. And we do learn from them. But we can't possibly take full advantage of all those events. When we do analyze events, I also think we're not doing as good a job as we could. And one of those reasons is that we use this model. You may be familiar with the Swiss cheese model, assuming that the causality of these events is linear, that one event leads to another, almost like dominoes falling. Our systems are way too complex now, and particularly once you start to integrate in the electronic record, automation, even robots, and so forth. The systems are way too complex to even consider that linearity holds. And so the concept of developing a root cause, the one cause that tipped off all the other causes, is a fool's errand. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, the analysis of these events is maybe not getting to the bottom of them. Mm And then I think the last reason, I mean, there are probably many, many other reasons, but when you think about that effector arm on these events, they're often weak, weak Mm -hmm. kind of 
loop closure on these events, typically it would be, why don't we do some education, you know, or ask them or give them a reminder. They're not often kind of hard improvements. Mm -hmm. And part of that is that hard improvements are hard. Part of that is that we don't own or run the supply chain, Mm -hmm. so we can't modify pieces of equipment. And part of that is sometimes we're asking frontline staff you submitted the event, well, you know, help us fix it, you know, yeah. on the side right. while you're busy well, taking you're care of patients. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just really challenging. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've sort of realized as well is that the methods by which we collect safety reporting information, we've now got whole industries devoted, right, to collecting and reporting this information. And to your point, it is great that we've created a culture where folks feel comfortable reporting these. And I'm sure we all have colleagues from all over the country that kind of run into this issue and they see thousands of reports. It's sometimes a little challenging to make sense of it. You know, the whole idea of turning data into information. I found that that continues to be a challenge. And then paired with it is what information are we missing in the electronic medical record that we're not capturing because we're really focused on a human response and an individual human's sense of responsibility to report yeah. as opposed to mining in a proactive fashion. And how do you think about that evolving, both the data infrastructure we do have and making better use of that, and then also future in terms of other avenues to be more proactive? Yeah, I think you're tapping into, or I think we should be going as a field in maybe some of the ways out of this. Maybe this is too grand to call it a paradigm change, but maybe a next wave. David Claussen, who's in Utah, has done a lot of work on, and David Bates to some degree, on what information can we glean from the electronic medical record that might even make the use of event reporting obsolescent. And the EMR already knows that Mrs. Mm-hmm. Smith has fallen. The mm-hmm. EMR already knows that we've had to rescue Mr. Jones because he got too much benzodiazepine or something like that. Yeah. Right? And so the EMR can clue us in to these safety events. There was this concept of trigger tools, and this there, those were an early attempt to do that. And those have been developed now so that you can look to see how many times this is happening and not be reliant on human reporting. I do think that that would be useful. And in part, maybe it's not to completely replace safety event reporting, but to allow humans to then not have to put in all of these events, but to give us some suggestions or to put in those really obscure events that might not be captured in the EMR. Yeah, I do think that there's value in that. I also see value that could help us with that input side. Right. The analysis side, there are some work. Nancy Levison, who's here at MIT, who's done some really nice work. I mean, she was a pioneer in safety industry, safety engineering. And she's done some nice work, which I think may be applicable to healthcare using different, more complicated, robust models than the typical RCA or right. the Swiss cheese model. Right. They get into math, <laughs> and she she loses me at, at you know the the little <laughs> symbols the MIT and, yeah the MIT ness <laughs> of it uh, kind of gets me lost but got to translate it to the rest of us uh, yeah but, but but I think she's onto something and so perhaps by using models like that frames like that to analyze these events we might better understand and be able to separate out the wheat from the chaff in yeah. terms of what what of these information can we glean as being important targets mm-hmm. for improvement. And then I think on the effector arm, we do need to think about automation and other tools that we can use that have been used in other industries to help make hard loop closures. When you think back on what would you point to that clearly is safer today than it was 25 years ago, 
most of those gains would come from the electronic record. For example, the last time that someone mistook a handwritten prescription and said, oh, is this labetalol yeah. or is this lamotrigine? <laughs> well, I think it's lamotrigine. Right. Well, here you go, doc. Yeah, that doesn't happen anymore. Right. Or barcoding, mm-hmm. med administration with barcoding. Huge, huge safety advantage to doing that mm-hmm. so that I don't mistakenly or the nurse doesn't mistakenly give you the wrong medication. Yeah. I think tools like that can be used, A, use those tools more universally, and then B, there are other opportunities mm-hmm. to do that. I do think that freeing up physicians and nurses and other key staff members from work will free them up to focus in on more improvement activities. I was talking to Venkat Jagadeesan this morning about some of the chat GPT. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if I'm allowed to say this, but we were working on that. (laughs) I know the uh, BILHIT team is working on finding use cases for that, like maybe creating a discharge summary or first draft of a discharge summary. That's a huge time sink for docs. And that would help free them up to do, again, direct patient care, improvement activities. Yeah, no, absolutely. Tony, what do you think the role of the patient is in the quality and safety movement, either qualitatively or maybe even something more specific and measurable that we think patients can be doing? Definitely. Yeah, 100%. Again, when you think about that historical arc, 1800s, the patient felt lucky just to be <laughs> cared for at all, yeah. you know, and they had no ability to really gain an understanding of their health condition or how they can play a role. And then over the course of the 20th century, you saw a huge shift toward autonomy, patient autonomy, mm-hmm. as information became freed up. And certainly that got moved into hyperdrive with the internet. And so now most patients can read up on their condition. And many patients are more knowledgeable about their own condition than I am or mm-hmm. that you are as a family yeah. practice doc. You know, And so increasingly they're playing a role. On the safety side, I think that's going to get moved forward by more patients accessing their own medical record. Yeah. And we already see that to some degree where, you know, this doctor, you know, they said I had a family history of X. You know, that's wrong, right? Right, You you need to change that. Or it says here in my record that I'm allergic to this. I'm actually not allergic to that. I'm allergic to this other medicine. Yeah. So those kind of safety checks on the record are important. And no one is going to have more interest in making sure their record is accurate, that the information is accurate than the patient themselves, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm excited about the EPIC installation, one uh, BILH next next year across all of the system because there's a really robust patient portal built into that. And I think we're going to see even more patient engagement in their own care and by extension in the safety movement. Yeah, no, absolutely. Tony, as we're wrapping up, I know that you mentioned you tend to be an optimist as it relates to the quality and safety movement. And I wonder if you think about that optimism in the context of our young system. Some of our conversations in this podcast is also related to the journey that we are on, right? Because there's so much change happening and it's so dynamic right now and a lot of really positive things. How do you view the opportunities as a larger system coming together in the quality and safety? I think it's critical. So, for example, when you look at the airline industry, if a piece goes wrong in an airplane or they want to make a change in the airplane, there are only a few manufacturers of those airplanes. (laughs) So it's much easier to create change and to make that systemic so that all airplanes, all aircraft are safer. As an individual doctor, as an individual hospital even, it's harder to make change or drive that supply chain change. But as a system, you know, for all purchasing the equipment, A, we can have a bit more leverage or a conversation with suppliers of that equipment, and B, we can inform each other about safety risks, and I think that's critical. 
we already talked about Epic, and I think the installation of that across our system and the consistency of communication that's going to afford mm-hmm. across the system right. will be critically important as well. Yeah. Well, Tony, I just want to thank you for your work and your dedication to the quality and safety movement within BLH and beyond. Appreciate it working with you. Looking forward to more work in the future. Thanks for your time today. Awesome. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Absolutely. And if folks have ideas or thoughts for future podcasts, please message us on social media and please rate us in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks very much.